Hi there, and welcome to One Body, One Life, proudly sponsored by Jamae's Fine Foods. I'm Vicky Nguyen, and I'm on a personal mission to live to 120, and I would absolutely love to take you on this journey with me. This fortnightly show is focused on longevity and understanding how we can all live longer and stronger through diet, exercise, lifestyle, nutrition, and so on. Each episode, we will uncover tips and tricks to living your healthiest and happiest life for as long as physically possible. I'll be chatting to the experts as well as people who have defied the odds and explore various treatments and modalities to help us all reach optimal wellness. Simon Hill is a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist who is extremely passionate about making nutritional information simple and accessible so that people can make informed decisions about the food they feed themselves and their family. As a physiotherapist, Simon has treated people from all walks of life, including professional AFL and VFL footballers. Over the years, however, Simon became increasingly curious about the role nutrition played in nourishing the body and preventing disease. Simon decided to dive deep into the available literature on on nutrition and disease and soon became fascinated by the vast evidence that proved that simple lifestyle changes could help to prevent and even reverse many of the leading chronic diseases that plague the Western world today. Concerned with the fact that this information was not reaching the masses, but instead getting lost amidst the myriad of marketing ploys pushed by industries who are more interested in profits than health, Simon shifted gears in his career, undertaking a plant-based nutrition certificate and a master's in nutrition. During this time, Simon set up plantproof.com and began hosting his own world-renowned podcast, hosting doctors and public figures on Plant Proof Podcast. He also just recently launched his first book, The Proof is in the Plants. So I'm very looking forward to having this chat with Simon today. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you, Vicky. Pleasure to be here with you and uh, looking forward to, to seeing where this goes. Amazing. So I um I said to you briefly before, I started your book, I purchased your book and I started it and I absolutely am so impressed. I've only started the intro, but I absolutely loved the first in the intro you mentioned about um, the seatbelt analogy about, you know, moving to plant-based is like putting a seatbelt on in the car. And I really love that because it's just such a simple analogy to help people kind of get their head around why you've gone plant-based and why plant-based is so important. But let's take it back a little bit. So um, tell us a bit about your your your, your backstory. Like, how did you land here? Yeah, so the, the, the backstory for me really goes back to my childhood, actually. And I grew up in Australia, or most of my time was in Australia. I spent a little bit of time in the United States as a, a really small junior but then finished my high school back in Melbourne and was living with my family in Melbourne. And I, at the age of 15, Vicky, saw for the first time what loss of health looks like. And that, at the time, really gave me a lot to think about and, and planted the seed for, for essentially writing this book and going back and doing a master's in nutrition. On a, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, I was out visiting the a range of uh, a handful of wineries with my dad in the Yarra Valley. You may have heard of that area. It's a very familiar, a, a quite a well-known <laughs> wine district. Yeah, beautiful part of the world. Absolutely. And we all kind of have those activities that we grow up doing with our parents or our uncles or friends, and and they're kind of it's about sort of bonding more than anything. And and visiting these wineries was more about just spending time with dad. Yep. On this one particular day, it was just my dad and I, and. We had been out all day. We're having a, a terrific time. And as we were driving back home, he started to to grimace. And I could see that he was experiencing some pain, some physical yes. pain. Yeah. So I sort of inquired and, and, and asked him, 
if everything was okay. And he said, he acknowledged that he had some chest pain, but he definitely played it down and, and sort of went into a little bit of denial. And so we proceeded home and ended up having dinner together. And, and again, he, he reassured me that everything was okay. He was still experiencing that pain, but really he didn't think it was anything too significant, or at least he wasn't showing that to me. Shortly after dinner, I headed off to bed. And I remember a few hours after being in bed, I remember hearing some noise in the kitchen, some sort of cluttering around and it woke me up. So I decided to, to go and see if dad was okay. In the back of my mind, I had remembered, you know, this pain that he was, he was experiencing. And so I walked out and it was just he and I because my, my mother and my brother, they were staying in Melbourne. We had a country house as well. So dad and I were spending the weekend out there. I came out and he was, he was pale. He was breathless and, you know, he was actually bending over sort of on his knees and had the, had the phone. So I could see that he was quite distressed. And by this time, I could actually see that that sort of brave facade during the denial phase had gone and I could see fear in his yeah. eyes. And my dad's a doctor. He is in, on the academic side of things now and is studying, you know, has been studying for decades, artery health and type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So he knew very, very well what was happening. So he called triple zero. They, of course, one of the things they like to do is ask if anyone else is there who can help describe the situation because they probably get a better picture of what's happening. And so I did describe to to the person on the phone uh, what he was experiencing and, and his symptoms. And they decided because we were in the country and quite remote and far away from the nearest hospital that the, the, the best thing to do was to send a helicopter. And so, yeah, before I knew it, they, the helicopter landed on this sort of clearing out the back of the, the house and in they came and scooped him up off the floor and put him on a stretcher, attached him to oxygen and heart rate monitors and were taking all the vital signs and asking lots of questions of him and lots of questions of me. And my, my dad was only 41 when this was happening, by the way. So young, so, so young. Very young, you know, young, a young dad with two teenage boys yeah. and you know for from the outside quite healthy he had no history of any sort of medical condition or illness he wow. was not on any medications for cholesterol or blood pressure he exercised you know he wasn't he wasn't like an iron man but yeah. he 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 wasn't someone that you would look at and say mm, that's no. a bit of a ticking time bomb yeah yeah and so I couldn't fit in a helicopter, so all of this was happening at a very fast pace. And Goodness. you know, hours earlier, everything was completely okay when we were at the winery. So this this all happened extremely fast. And so he was taken in the helicopter, and I was told to to follow in a in an ambulance, which had arrived by then uh, to the hospital. And so I did that and called my mother and brother on the way. And there was a, a period there that felt like a very long time where we were kind of just waiting to see what was happening. So we knew at that stage that it was very likely he was having a heart attack. Yeah. And by the time we got to the hospital, there was a waiting period. And then the, the cardiologist came out and said to our family, he said, we, we have saved your dad's life. He had a, he was having a cardiac arrest and we've stabilized him. He will be on medications for the rest of his life. And 
he is likely to have done some damage to his heart, but we have saved him and he has a second chance. Wow. And so that was really what, a shock. what we were obviously most most concerned about. And, and, and so that was what we were focused on and was most important at the time. A little a little while after, we once dad was you know, completely fine to also join into the conversation, we, we had a conversation as a family with the cardiologist. And the cardiologist said to my brother and I, I've taken your dad's history and I understand that his father also had cardiovascular disease and a heart attack, albeit his heart attack was when he was 60, so a little bit older than my dad. Yeah. And so as uh, I and, and my brother, who's three, two and a half, three years older than me, as we get older and, and move into adulthood, we should be getting regular screening. And that bit of advice is not bad advice. It's actually yeah. good advice. Yeah. It's just that the conversation really ended there. Yeah, right. For many years, I kind of went on with life and didn't didn't look at any aspect of my lifestyle or give any consideration as to why my dad had a heart attack at age 41 because I assumed that, well, his dad had it, he had it. My dad was living, at, you know, for all intents and purposes, a standard Australian lifestyle. He had a heart attack at age 41. This is, this is written into our genetic code. It is mm. what it is. And maybe it's something that I'll have to deal with when, when I'm my, da- my dad's age. And... And when you're 15, 41 seems like a, a, a relatively long way away. Yeah. Even though 41 now, I think about it, it's super, super young. It's my yeah, age. For many years, I kind of lived with, I guess, a, a little bit of a limiting belief and and some, I was, there was a, a degree of disempowerment yep. because I felt like a lot of my health fate was out of my control. Yeah, right. And so fast forward odd years and, and having been compelled to, to learn more and get into the nutrition science and like when I say get into nutrition science I mean get right in there and properly understand it and we can go into to some of that if we, if we want in this conversation but it became very clear to me that by and large the main reason that these diseases that we have accepted in our society as normal cardiovascular disease various types of cancer uh type 2 diabetes, cognitive decline. We've accepted these and we're experiencing these. People are experiencing them much earlier and for longer than many other populations in the world. Yes. The main reason these are running in families is because families are adopting the same lifestyles as each each other. Right. And yes, genetics can play a role, but science has been really good at teasing out that and we've, we've got lots of different studies looking at identical twins, for example, with the exact same genes that then end up living in different environments so we can measure the, the effect of the environment versus the genetics. Yes. And it is it is very clear that our genes, they do play a role, but they probably only control around 20% of our fate. Right. Whereas 80% boils down Lifestyle. to the way that we, we navigate through this world. Yeah, right. Amazing. And so was that enough for you, seeing what your dad went through? Was that the catalyst for you then to go, okay, I'm going to take – control of my health and my destiny and set yourself on a path of wellness. Is that what happened for you? Well, not initially because initially when I was 15, I really I didn't understand that, that I had more control and, and I, I put it down to genetics and, and then sort of inevitability. Yeah. Whereas, yes, once I, once I found this information and really understood the, the risk factors and the, the lifestyle contribution to these diseases, then yes, I, I immediately felt very empowered. Mm. And so it became information that I wanted to apply myself 
but also share with my friends and family. And then the progression of that was to, to share this with more people because ultimately our community is suffering. We have normalized these diseases. People are having their quality of life stripped from them and are becoming very reliant on the healthcare system and are living shorter lives. Exactly. And, and I think all of this is information that everyone deserves to have. Absolutely. I love it. No, it's interesting. I mean, you've done, you've spent the last couple of years, obviously your book's about three years in the making and it's such an exciting time now because it seems like, um, you know, so, so many more people are becoming aware of the impact that food and lifestyle is having on their overall health and well-being. So, so tell us, when you're practicing as a physio, what did you observe in your patients? Was there any like commonalities that you noticed um, that were that you're dealing with with the patients, and 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 how did you recognise that it was what they were eating that was impacting their physical, mental, and perhaps emotional well-being? Well, I guess there's some parallels. Uh, it wasn't necessarily as a physio, other than and then noticing in the in the football club environments, there was a there was really not an evidence-based approach to nutrition. Yeah, it was just a, a, a sort of cookie cutter, same same type of, of program for every single player. It was focused on macronutrients not the source of those macronutrients. There was an obsession with protein and meat, animal protein in particular. And it, it really just seemed to me, because at that time, you have to remember, I hadn't gone and, and studied nutrition. So even my understanding of nutrition was really, even though I'd come through physiotherapy and done a little bit of, of nutrition in that course, really my nutrition, just like most doctors in this country, yeah. was shaped by culture. Yes, and shaped by online and media, and and that's no way to really get to to closer to scientific truth and to be giving really good public health recommendations. Yeah, to to help people. So I felt that in that football club environment, more than anything, it wasn't that I knew exactly what was wrong. I just felt I felt inadequate in my ability to discuss nutrition, mm. and I also felt like there was just inadequate education within that environment about nutrition from any of the, the health professionals. Yes. It was it was a, a feeling of there's, there's missing information here yeah. is is how I would describe that. Okay. And and of course it, it then took, you know, many, many, many years of science and reading a, a lot of papers and talking to a lot of experts to start making sense of everything. And obviously, I mean, on a plant-based diet, I mean, the first thing people ask, because my husband's a vegan as well, and, and there's this huge misconception that people don't get enough protein. Um, you mentioned before, even with the, the athletes and people that you were treating as a physio, like there's a whole protein, such a big focus. Um, how do you ensure as a plant-based, like as you with your diet, had that you're ensuring that you're getting enough protein and is it overrated anyway? Yeah, I'd say firstly, I, I don't believe protein is overrated. I think that I think that sometimes within the vegan community, the importance of protein is actually downplayed too much. And, and I can kind of understand where that's coming from, but I think we have to zoom back out. The type of protein is what matters most. If we look at studies that are looking at substitution analysis, and they're looking at disease outcomes. And what I mean by substitution analysis is if someone was to take you know, X percent of calories from animal protein and instead eat X percentage of calories from plant protein, what happens to their disease risk? We see time and time again that when people swap animal protein for plant protein, they lower their risk of disease. Right. Things like cardiovascular disease and lower their risk of premature death. I think this idea that protein is not 
something that we need to be aware of and focus on and it's not important is a little misguided. Yeah. I think protein is really important. It's, it, it's, it's particularly important in different life stages. For example, during pregnancy, protein requirement goes up a little bit. Yes. We know if you're an athlete, your protein requirement goes up. We know if someone reaches 65, 70 years old, protein requirement actually bumps up a little bit and, and, and higher protein intake is actually protective against osteopenia, osteoporosis, falls, um, broken bones, and that higher protein intake once someone's at sort of 65, 70 is associated with a longer lifespan. Yeah. So I think I, I, in my book, I try not to downplay protein. I think it still is an important nutrient, but I think it's something that we don't need to be obsessed with. We just yes. need to be aware of. Yeah. Now, when it comes to plant protein, often the and, and these are very valid questions and they're questions I had when I was transitioning. There's usually two questions that come up. One is, well, three, can you get enough protein from plants alone? Yes. Number two, do, do those plants contain all of the amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, or are they yeah. missing any? And the third that usually comes up is, well, is that protein as bioavailable? Is it as digestible? When you eat 30 grams of protein, can your body use it as well as animal protein? Yeah. And that's usually what comes up and perhaps I'll work through those quite quickly for you. So Go for it. First, we know very clearly that the total amount of protein that, that someone requires, they can easily get from a plant-exclusive diet. Now, I should, I should also outline that in my book, I'm not necessarily out, uh, advocating for a, a dietary label. I'm, I'm guiding the reader with the science and they can find the, the level of commitment that works for them. Yes, I love that. But if we're talking about plant-exclusive diet here, yes, absolutely. If you're eating plants and you're eating with diversity and you're eating food, food groups like legumes, which is beans and lentils and, and tofu and tempeh, so providing you're not doing something like just eating rice for all of your calories, yep. then you will get all the protein you need. Okay. And if you're an athlete and your protein requirement is a bit higher, then you can place greater emphasis on the high-protein food group foods, like I just mentioned there, to help you achieve that level. Absolutely. And I don't think that's debated anymore. I think that's generally accepted, which is great. Is it based on grammage? Is that how you measure how much you need? Yeah. So 0.8, uh, 0.8 kilogram of body weight is, is considered roughly the, the RD, RDI yep. around the world. Okay. Uh, it varies a little bit, but let's say 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Yep. Uh, so if you weigh 100 kilos, that's 80 grams of protein. Yep. Got it. Okay. Keep going. And if you weigh 50 kilos, that's uh, 40 grams of protein a day. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of like the amount of protein you require as someone who's relatively inactive, a, a very low level of activity sort of lifestyle. Yes. Someone might describe that as sedentary. Yep. And, okay. and then as you go up... Uh, a sort of high-functioning athlete who is looking to increase muscle, lean muscle, strength, etc. The evidence-based recommendation for total protein is around 1.2 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Okay. Now, there doesn't seem to be a, a difference really between 1.6 and 2.2. Uh, so, really, you know, there doesn't say it's not the, it's not a nutrient where if you just keep increasing it, you keep getting benefit. Okay. So. So that's the range, and if you're following following in that range, and your idea, your goal is complete optimization for lean muscle and strength, then that's that's the target that you want to hit. One point okay. six grams per kilo being the lower end of that sort of threshold. Yeah. Okay. Um, and as I say, you can get that easily from plants. 
I think most athletes that are out there that are sort of hitting that range, whether you're an omnivore or not, are probably adding in a protein shake. So the omnivores may be having a whey or a, pro- or a plant protein shake, and the plant-based athletes probably just a plant uh, a plant-based protein shake. Yep. Okay. And and that can you know increase the the protein across the day by thirty or forty grams yeah. quite easily. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so that's protein amount. Yes. And then the the second sort of question that often comes up is around the individual amino acids. Yes. And there's terms complete and incomplete protein. You've probably heard of those. Yeah. So these are often a little bit misrepresented. And actually, I believe I misrepresented them, you know, four or five years ago. I was probably misrepresenting these definitions. So I think it's important we understand what they are. Go for it. So complete and incomplete as a as a word, you would assume that if someone is describing a protein as incomplete, that it's missing something. Yes. It's missing an amino acid, right? Yeah. Now, that's actually not, when these definitions were made up, that's not how incomplete was defined. Okay. So let me explain. So every single plant contains all nine essential amino acids. Amazing. It's really important for people to understand. Every yep. single plant, doesn't matter which one it is, all of them contain every single nine essential amino acids. Amazing. And just for the listeners, amino acids are the building blocks that we need in order to... Our body produces around 30,000 different types of protein. Yep. And to, to make protein in the body, it uses non-essential amino acids and essential amino acids. Okay. They're non-essential amino acids. You don't have to worry about getting those in your diet because your body can synthesize, it can make them. Okay. The essential, the nine essential amino acids, yeah. we have to get through our diet because we can't make them. Right. Okay. So, firstly, all plants contain all of those nine essential amino acids. Great. Where that definition comes from and where it can be useful is actually in developing countries. And, right. and let me explain why. Okay. So, incomplete protein, yeah. what that means is that within that, within that, pro- within that food, Yes. If you were to consume just that food for all of your calories in that day. Yes. For example, if Vicky only ate white rice for all of your calories in one day. Yeah. You would fall short on one of the amino acids. Right. Lysine based on the recommended daily intake of lysine. Okay. Okay. So I don't I I would assume that you you wouldn't be doing that. No. Eating all, <laughs> all of your calories no. from white rice, right? No. But I do know someone who just lives on white potatoes. Go yeah. on. And, and, and so if, if, look, if someone is eating a diet where they, they have uh, limited food access, there's food security issues, yeah. the, the this definition of incomplete and complete becomes more important. So, so, for example, all plant products have got the nine essential amino acids. That's, that's complete, right? No. So th- this is where it gets slightly confusing, right? Okay. So you would have heard that, say, uh, quinoa. Yes, and, and chia. I consider complete. Yes. Uh, whereas white rice is considered incomplete. Yes. Now, all of those contain all nine essential amino acids. The only difference is if you ate all of your calories in one day from quinoa, you would get you would get each of those nine essential amino acids in the amount your body requires. Right. Whereas if you ate all your calories in one day from white rice. Yep. You would fall short on lysine because the ratio of lysine in white rice is much smaller. Okay, got it. But either way, to summarize this, the the words incomplete and complete are really only relevant in the context of someone who's getting all of their calories from one single protein source. So in the Western world, we don't really need to worry about that. 
Absolutely not. And anyone can download Chronometer, which is a free app. Yep. And plug in a day of eating. Yes. You don't even have to do that day of eating. Just plug it in. Just just go and choose, you know, three or four meals, plug it all in, and you'll see it breaks down all the amino acids, the essential ones, and you'll see it it shoots way over a hundred percent for all of them, providing the only thing that you have to, to make sure you do is you're you're eating with just a tiny bit of mo- like modest diversity. I'm talking tiny amount of diversity will get yeah. you there. Yeah. But you need to eat enough calories. Yes. So the only way that this can go awry, and it's the same on an omnivorous diet, is if someone just ate nowhere near the amount of calories that their body's requiring. Yeah, right. The, the last piece on that, just to summarize that for you, would be the, the bioavailability. And this is really interesting and and i'd love to see some more science that that looks at bioavailability in humans over the last decade definitely been thought that plant protein is inferior to animal protein from a bioavailability point of view right we have to look at the science and look at what was tested and therefore what does it tell us yes and all of that 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 those conclusions are from two different protein scoring systems i won't go into them because it's kind of redundant it's not that important The most important thing to understand is that these were looking at protein, bioavailability, and utilization in rats and pigs. And rats have a very different digestive system to humans. And and pigs, pigs are a little bit more similar to humans. But the the largest problem with these studies is that they're feeding them raw plant protein, so raw legumes. And that's crazy. When we we know that, I mean, Vicky, you wouldn't eat a raw legume. Exactly. Yeah. So we know that when you when you soak. Or and, and cook these foods, the protein becomes more available. The yes. food becomes easier to digest. Yes. And so those those studies actually are not that relevant to humans and the foods we're eating and how we're eating them. Mm. And in the last few years, and I write about this study in the book, it's now thought that the difference between absorption is probably only a few percent. Okay. And this is this is early. There's there's only a couple of studies. So as I said at the start, I'd like to see some more science on that. Yeah. But it does seem like based on the type of studies that have been done historically, the, the fact that it's in animals, the fact they're using raw protein, that the differences have probably been overstated a little bit. Yeah, right. How interesting. So so in a nutshell, plant so you, from your from the research you've done, plants are as bioavailable, would you say, as meat product? Yeah, and I think the anyone's listening, the that that is thinking this through. the The best way to test this is to to run a trial and look at two groups: one who's consuming all animal protein, one all plant protein. Yeah, and let's let's measure let's measure uh, lean muscle growth. Yeah, let's right. Measure um, strength, and they've done that. There was a trial that came out about three months ago out of Brazil. Uh, they did exactly that. They had one group, hundred percent of their diet was plant plant-based, they had the other group animal-based, they matched their protein intake at 1.6 grams per kilo, they put them through resistance training over 12 weeks, they measured the amount of lean muscle growth and and muscle protein synthesis, which is like a biomarker of of growth, Uh, and they measured strength, and they saw that there was no differences between the two groups at all. Amazing. Which which clearly shows us from a strength performance point of view, at least in a 12-week setting, which for randomized controlled trial is actually reasonably long, that as long as you're getting total protein, then it doesn't appear to matter what what the origin of that protein is coming from, plant or or uh, animal. 
How interesting. I mean, you're an incredibly fit guy. I've seen your physique and, you, you know, as a male who is in good, um, such good shape, like were you concerned at all that going plant-based would impact your muscle tone and your definition? Oh, absolutely. I was very concerned. <laughs> I think that fear and that is, is like it's shared. That's very common, right? Yeah, because every guy uh, that we speak to, like a lot of Martin's mates, they tease him for being a vegan and, you know, I'm pretty much vegan. I've been like raw foodie for a long time now and I have meat maybe once a month or as I, as my, I feel my body needs. But for Martin, he's pretty hardcore vegan and, and, you know, they hang it on him for being a vegan firstly, but also that's the first thing they worry about. It's like, no, 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 I can't give up meat because it's going to impact the way I look. Um, so how did you deal with that? Well, initially the fears were there. They were real and I just needed to, two things. I needed to understand from, from a science point of view, all of that stuff we just went through yep. was really important. Yeah. And then I needed to, I needed to see it for myself. Yes. And and I can tell you that I've well and truly been able to build muscle. I think, you know, over over six years ago now, when I completely removed animal products, I weighed about, and I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but I weighed then uh, about 83 kilos. Yeah. And today I sit at about 92 wow. and just as lean and I'm significantly stronger than then. You know, could I be bigger? My intention is not to be as big as 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 I can get. So um, I've been able to make all of that progress and improve strength and performance uh, whilst not having this kind of mindset of a bodybuilder per se. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, I can I can definitely say firsthand I've seen that it's absolutely possible to 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 consume a plant exclusive diet and build strength, improve your physique, uh, and and really. I just encourage people to once once they understand the science, the stuff we just discussed, to implement it and to feel it out and, and you'll start to see the results. As long as you're coupling it, of course, with a really good resistance training program, um, you know, at the end of the day, structure reflects function and you can eat eat as well as you want, but you still you need that stimulus there as well. Yeah, right. I mean I run forty two Ks a week. I personally struggle to put on muscle. But I think so. What's is your is your secret more weight training, less cardio when you want to look as buff as you? Is that the key? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you run forty two k's a, a, a week, again, structure reflects function. You wouldn't be a great runner if you had loads of muscle hanging off of you. Yeah, right. Um, so your body is adapting to the stress and exercise you're uh, you're putting Put it through that. routinely. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's and that's the right physique for you if you want to run forty two k's. Yeah. My physique today, as it is, is is not a great physique for running 42Ks. And in fact, I I ran, uh, I trained up a little while ago to, just to run a uh, a 26 kilometer trail run. Oh yeah. And and in in the training for that, I definitely I trimmed up. I got lighter. Um, I still held lean muscle, and and I put that down to the resistance training that I I continue that through that yeah. period of cardio. But I definitely trimmed up and my body changed to, to reflect that increased running I was doing. Okay. Now, what, do I do I think resistance training is important? I'm not sure if that was your your question, but I think if you're if you are wanting to build lean muscle, then yes, resistance training very important. I think cardio cardio and resistance training. I don't. It's not a question of what's better. They have different purposes. Yes. The you know, some people love running. You might love running and that's your go-to exercise and it's great for your mental health as well as Definitely. cardiovascular health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like there is this huge cardiovascular benefits on offer from 
from getting out and going for a run or getting on a bike or going for a brisk walk and things like that. Yeah. But equally, there is also really good science to suggest that having some lean muscle, doing some resistance training, it's not just about, you know, we get caught up and, and think that exercise is sort of bodybuilding, but really resistance training of any form is really, really important for for health outcomes. We yes. know that people who have stronger, lower uh, lower body strength are less likely to develop uh, dementia. We know ah, that the, that the stronger you are, the strong, and that may be reflected in the fact that those people are just doing more exercise, um, so it's more of a correlation. But yes. we know that people who are stronger definitely have less risk of, of osteoporosis yes. and falls and and that's associated with total sort of mortality, premature death. So I think there's an, there's 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 reasons to use both forms of movement yeah. uh, in your in your life. Yeah, right. Amazing. So tell us what's a typical day on a plate for Simon Hill. What does your diet consist of daily, and and also tell us your your exercise regime as well. Okay, great. So food wise, uh, I the the foundation of my diet is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts. Yeah. And lots lots of those in their sort of whole or minimally processed form. And, you know, like like many of us, I I, I tend to have a, a a sort of approach with food where I have relaxed foods in my diet as well. Yeah. So it's not just about being one hundred percent pure in terms of all whole food, all minimally processed. There are little bits of, you know, treats. And, and little you know, yeah, enjoyment-style foods that I have in the diet and I don't feel guilty having them. For yeah. me, they make the overall dietary pattern very sustainable and something I can adhere yes. to long-term. Yeah, perfect. Um, but from a, from a typical day, if I was to describe sort of main meals, overnight oats are a big one for me. Uh, very, very simple to make, just oats in a fridge with plant-based milk. Yeah. And then in the morning, I'd be adding... Seeds, nuts and seeds, so flax or chia, some uh, walnuts are one of my favorite nuts. I yeah. like pistachios. And then uh, fruit. I'm a big one on berries. I love berries. So there's, there's, there's always a, a good mix of berries going through my breakfast. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's usually the way that I would start the day, particularly on the, on the weekdays where uh, I'm moving a little bit quicker and probably have a little less time because it's quite easy to organize. Yes. Uh, weekends for breakfast, perhaps I'll spend a little bit more time and do something a little more creative, like a really nice tofu scramble or um, some sort of chickpea omelette or things like that. Yeah. And and in those styles, more savory meals, it's there's a lot of veg in there and a lot of dark leafy greens. So. Yeah. You know, chopped up broccolini, mushrooms, tomatoes, uh, spinach, Yum. kale. That's making that me hungry sort of now. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, so really trying to work those in those really important yeah. vegetables, and and also making them taste great with herbs, yes. spices, and uh, you know condiments. So that's the key, isn't sauce. it? We eat for flavor. We we eat for flavor. So none of this. I really think it's really important to to emphasize that because often we think, oh, eating healthy is like, I've got to make such a sacrifice. I can't do this. And so I think it's important. We don't have to to remove the joy from food. Uh, um, I still really, really, really love my food. I I get so much joy from it. 
And, you know, whilst overnight oats might sound a little boring, I think when you work with the, the toppings, and again, I put cinnamon on there, and you can add a little bit of maple syrup if you want. There yeah. are ways to make it super tasty. Yes. Snack-wise, so, again, you know, I, I, I do require a fair bit of calories because I work out every day. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of around, sit around that 90 to 93 kilos. So between breakfast and lunch, often there's a smoothie. Okay. And this will be – this. I, I usually train in the morning. Yes. So this smoothie comes sort of after training. Okay. And this is – that's where I would add the – the protein powder that I have for the day would go into that. Yeah. There would be some uh, plant-based milk in there. There would be some grains again, so spinach. There would be some more um, nuts or seeds, perhaps some frozen banana and some frozen blueberries. Yeah. Yeah. And I always do try and have a couple of serves of blueberries a day. I think they're one of the most healthy promoting foods. I don't yes. like to, to point out and single out one food as being some crazy um, <laughs> sort of food. silver bullet. Yeah. But but blueberries in particular, there is some great research to show that the anthocyanins, which are uh, polyphenol yeah. in them, uh, are particularly good not just for long-term brain health, but also for firing up your brain in, in your day-to-day. Yeah, right. So... I uh, always try to work those in. And then, so that's that's like a bit of a, a sort of snack for me. And then lunch is usually, it's a savory. Lunch is probably my biggest meal of the day. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a usually a large bowl of some type of grain, whole okay. grain. Uh, so brown rice or wild rice or quinoa or buckwheat, something like that. And, and then there'll be lots of, of vegetables again so we're looking for color and, and some diversity in there and and so there's no sort of set recipe that will be based on what I've picked up for the week and, and what's in the fridge yep and then I'm always thinking about what's where, where is there's protein in all these foods as we described earlier but yes the main source you're, you're going to get most of your protein from legumes yep so if you are an active person, even if you're not, I think most meals you should be thinking about where are you getting those from or okay. protein. It'll be, be from legumes or nuts and seeds. So I should have mentioned that's actually, I use soy milk on my overnight oats, which okay. bumps up the protein quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so lunch, uh, I'll throw in some sort of lentils or kidney beans or three bean mix or tofu or yeah. tempeh. They'll all just sit on a bit of a rotation for me. Okay. Uh, and 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 probably some some type of nut or seed on that. It's a bit of like a Buddha bowl, which I'm sure you're familiar yes, with. Yeah. And and then there may be a snack, another snack, depending if I feel hungry between then and and uh, and dinner. Yeah. And uh, dinner is could be. I mean, I, I I have a lot of things on rotation. I think most of us probably have five or six go-to dishes that we yeah. love to have. Yeah. You know, I do a, a a spaghetti bolognese, which is using uh, legume pasta. Oh, yeah? And, like a black bean pasta or something? Yeah, like a black bean pasta or a chickpea pasta or a mung bean pasta. There's a few out there now. Yeah, it's good. And then to make the bolognese, it's just as you would make sort of like a beef bolognese, but instead of the beef mince, 
I use lentils, lentils yeah. walnuts, and mushrooms. Yep, perfect. And you know, just cook that down in 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 a pan with the with the sort of tomato paste, tomato sauce. Yep. Add in all your your flavors like Kalamata olives and herbs and spices, and yep. you can put a little bit of red wine in there if you want as well, and just make a nice, really rich bolognese uh, yep. sauce. That's super easy. Uh, very healthy. I think I write in the book. I think one of the best swaps that someone can make if they're just looking to sort of dip their toes in the water is a couple of times a week swapping red meat out for something like that, some yes. type of legume. Great way to start. Uh, so that that's that's one option for dinner. Uh, but it could be equally, it could be another uh, Buddha bowl or a big salad. Uh, there's 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 quite a few things on, on There's rotation. so many and options. Gen- generally, I'm just thinking back to the food groups and thinking, you know, I want, I really want quite a lot of vegetables in there. We all need to eat more vegetables. Yes. And and again, you can make them taste good. So whichever, often I get asked, what's the best way to cook vegetables? Yeah. <laughs> whichever way is going to make you eat more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So however you you prefer to to cook them and season them, spice them. Do that so that you eat them more often. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, there's so much you can do. It. It's funny, you know, when we host a lot and often people say, oh, you know, what are we going to cook you? Martin's a vegan and you're a raw. And, you know, what are, and it's funny how people kind of get a brain, a brain block when it comes to cooking for vegans or plant-based. You know, it's so, so much easier. I think it's so much easier. And like we said earlier, you eat for flavor. And as long as people know how to use herbs and spices and, you know, make it colorful, like it's, it's such an easy way to cook. And in fact, it, I find it so much easier and, and quicker. Like we eat a lot of raw, as I mentioned, but um, it's just easier. Like we do stir fries and roasts and raw, you know, like salads and soups and there's so many options, but that's amazing. And what about your take on soy product because I know you mentioned you have soy milk and tofu and tempeh and so forth but what about that in terms of the impact it may have on the endocrine system especially for women or those who have suffered breast cancer okay great question uh so most of the 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 research that sort of has a a bit of fear out there around women and endocrine and breast cancer is on rats and it's really important to understand that okay and a lot of that is looking at high high concentrations of phytoestrogens. Yeah, and and so phytoestrogens are within soy products. Yes, they are a phytochemical, which means plant chemical. Yep, and they they're naturally occurring, but they are also made into supplement form in capsules, and and you can take them as a high dose. Right, and and the studies showing issues with sort of cancer promotion are looking at rats who are fed a large dose of these phytoestrogens well beyond what you would get from soy products, tofu, tempeh, okay. soy milk. Okay. That's the first thing that's really important for people to understand. Yes. And the latest cancer guidelines explain that. Okay. Unfortunately, on, on the socials and whatnot, sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that not all science is equal. Yeah, exactly. And and I get it. It's scary, right? Like if you've had breast cancer or you have it, you see that, then you know instantly your mind yeah. thinks, okay, I need to rule out soy and, and whatnot. And look, if someone decides they want to, uh, soy doesn't have to be part of a, of a plant-based diet, but I don't, I don't think that theory is valid. I think two things I'd add to that. So one, 
it's coming from these studies looking at just concentrations of ice flavones that you would not get in whole soy food. Okay. The second is that when we look at epidemiology, which is uh, observational studies looking at at people in the real world who are consuming soy products, it looks it actually looks like soy products are protective against breast cancer. Wow. Now this is this is observational. And so we can't draw uh, a conclusive causality. We can't say it's a cause and effect relationship. Okay. But what we see is, particularly in Asian countries, Asian countries where women are exposed to soy early in life. Yes. And and researchers are now hypothesizing that it may be that it's soy's inclusion early in life that is what is protective because these populations have a much lower incidence of breast, breast cancer. cancer. Interesting. Now, we need we actually need more clinical trials to understand that relationship a little bit more. But overall, right now, based on observational research in humans, not in rats, it looks like soy foods are protective against breast cancer. And the the theory why is that these isoflavones, which often are called phytoestrogens, yes, they actually bind to the same receptor as estrogen. And so they block the effect of estrogen. And we know that it's it's well thought that estrogen can can drive these hormonal uh, cancers like prostate and breast cancer. So that's believed to be the, the mechanism behind how soy could be protective because it can block the more sort of potent natural estrogens in yeah. the blood from having action. Interesting. Now, the, the, the overall current consensus statement, the cancer guidelines state that the soy can be included within a healthy plant-based dietary pattern, which is what they recommend. They do say, until there's more research, isoflavone supplements, these high-dose, high, highly concentrated supplements. Yeah. Should, should not be consumed or considered until there is more evidence. Okay, interesting. Very interesting because everyone, this is the first thing people say now when you bring up soy products, like, no, no, it's not good for breast cancer. It causes breast cancer or they've got this misnomer about it. But um, that's interesting. So, and anyone can jump on and, and read the, the Australian Cancer Society statement on this or the American Cancer Society statement on this. They're, they're all up to date based on all of the latest evidence where they look at not just what's happening in rats, but what's happening in humans and, and looking at the evidence hierarchy, which essentially means evaluating science, understanding that not all science is equal, yes. and then coming to public health recommendations. Interesting. Well, the good thing now is, I mean, once upon a time, it was just pretty much soy milk that we had as an option, as an alternative to milk. But now there's so many options, you know, <laughs> with oat, we've got rice, we've got coconut, we've got almonds, you know, every single nut pretty much can be turned into a milk. So we're so lucky now that we've got those options. But um, what about lab-grown meat? What's your take on that? <laughs> well, I think right <laughs> Actually, now, the thought of it makes me sick, but what, what do you think? Okay, right now, I, I think that with the climate predicament that we're faced, yeah. and also it's, it's a human rights issue in that we have lots of, we have 900 million people who are undernourished. Yes. We have a population that's expected to get to 11 billion people and one of the biggest problems is how can we make more protein right. without continuing to degrade our planet? Yeah, okay. And so I think any solution that is that that can is a possibility and may be able to help us achieve that should be considered. Mm. And we know that animal agriculture 
as as a practice as it is right now is severely damaging the yeah. planet. Yeah. It takes up eighty three percent of of current land that's dedicated to agriculture, yet it only gives us eighteen percent of calories. Yes. It's very, very inefficient. So the idea of cellular agriculture for me is something worth exploring. Certainly, I'm I'm a I'm a, a realist. I think that the, the world's not going to be vegan overnight. Mm. And yeah, okay. and if we if we can if we can help people eat a more sustainable, environmentally friendly diet without them having to even consider it. Yeah, literally, they can pick it up off the shelf. Yeah, it tastes as good or better. It is the same price or cheaper, yep. but it's better for the environment. I see that a as win. a huge win yeah. in terms of meeting these climate goals that in the next 10 to 20 years, we just quite frankly have to meet. Fair enough. Okay, that makes sense. Do I think the science is there yet to support those products? I think it's too early to know. We don't even know how environmentally friendly they are. Yeah. Uh, we still don't understand what, what's the health effect of those products. Exactly. How healthy are they? I don't think it's going to change things from a human health perspective so i have some concerns there uh i think either way people should be moving to a more plant-based approach mm. and and down or de-emphasizing animal protein in their diet i just go back to what i said at the start that i think all solutions should be entertained yeah. but i think we need to learn a lot more about it yeah i read an article about it recently and i think it stacks up protein wise but i'm not sure i mean what are what about vitamins and minerals and so forth does it does a profile match real meat like i don't actually know but the idea is that they can control the what they're feeding into it so from what i understand it will it will still contain iron and vitamin b12 and things like that based okay. on what they feed into the system right uh, but i don't i don't know if they understand truly yet how efficient it is and how does it compare to current animal agriculture I mean, there've been a few films and documentaries, and so many books of recent times, like the Game Changers film and Vegan 2020 and Cowspiracy and Seaspiracy and all those, which have gained so much attention. All of them promoting a plant-based lifestyle as a key to not only saving um, and prolonging life, but also protecting the earth and the animals, which is great. And it does feel like there's a real momentum gaining. There's a real shift in people's, uh, I guess, attitudes towards what they're consuming. But what do you think it will take to shift the majority of the world to wake up to the facts and to start consuming less animal products? Or is it just a matter of time for this inf- information to infiltrate a little bit more? What are your thoughts? I think there's a, hu- there's a few huge factors here. One is business is going to lead the way and, and capitalism is going to, to reshape the world. And so and a lot of that is actually being driven by consumer demand. So yeah. what we're seeing is growth in plant-based categories massively. We see plant-based milk in America is now 11% off that market in terms of milk, which is huge. Yes. To take that off the dairy is massive. Yeah. Uh, so there, there is the business side of things, which is just changing the landscape and the food environment. Mm. More, more options for people, making it easier. And and look, the the this consciousness and the education part as you say, it is increasing and there's so much more information out there. And I think if we just come back to, I think every human, uh, I, I like to, to say that it's not about instilling new beliefs and values in humans. I think that everyone has shared values and beliefs when it comes to our planet and it yeah. comes to caring for all life on the planet. I really do. I think yeah. they're there. I think our children are the best examples of that. Yes. We condition it out of, of ourselves through the environment that we're in. True. Um, and that's why I say I think kids are the best example because we can learn a lot from them. Yes. Before before they are conditioned, we can see 
how they how they care for the environment and animals before they the yeah. society has a, has had a chance to take that away from them. Yes. And so I think that a lot of this education and information that you spoke to that is coming out, what it's helping people do is just tap back in mm. to those values and beliefs that they already have. Yes. Yeah. And so what happens is when when that happens it's a sort of introspective experience and we've all had it. There's internal dialogue where you start to think, okay, I'm actually identifying here what my values and beliefs are and now I, I need to look at my actions. Are they aligned? Mm, exactly. And and so I think there is a lot of that happening uh, and, you know, how long do I think this is going to take to sort of completely transform the world? I'm very optimistic. I think just if you look at the last five years, there's been huge, huge changes. Yes, yeah. And quite frankly, I think the businesses will lead the way, but I think governments are going to step in because climate change is becoming an, an economical conversation, as as is public health. The Having a, a sick and, and unhappy population is not productive. Yes. It's not good for the economy. And we're seeing different governments around the world start to take action, start to legislate. Like the UK has banned junk food at the checkout. And so they're pushing back and saying, you know what, we're no longer going to let this food industry, these transnational uh, large food companies, big food as it's often called, Mm. just dictate what our community eats and take advantage of of their biology, uh, so to speak. So I think we will see this, what I hope is this prioritization of health for, for the planet and for humans uh, from our government, which will will be their response to to facing sort of economical crisis if they don't otherwise act. So as you know, and you talk a lot about industry marketing having a lot to answer for and having a massive impact on health food trends and the influence um, on consumers regarding their choice in food. But what's the worst you've seen? In terms of marketing or industry? Yeah, product? in terms of marketing. It's hard for me to pinpoint one one single example. I think marketing does flow into the science, um, but I would say outside of the the industry funded science, the I mean the fact that the the Meat and Livestock Association and the Dairy and Dairy Australia are creating curriculums and are getting into our our classrooms is yes. worrying for me. Um, yeah. They're teaching kids about the role of cattle in sustainability and how it's good for our environment. And this is greenwashing. My goodness. And so my my problems with that, and it would sit on the other side as well if the soy industry was in the classroom as well. I don't think anyone in the food industry should be educating our children. I don't think that's objective. I don't think they're going to be impartial. We have to realize what is that industry's number one priority? Is it the health of our children and spreading the good word or is it profit? Are they setting mm. themselves up for lifetime customers? Exactly. I mean, we see it a lot because we've got a food business as well and we see it a lot with um, various companies making claims and one of the ones that stands out is um, the collagen supplements and how, you know, they're marketed as mm. a beauty and wellness supplement. But what's your opinion on that? I guess specifically on the science of, look, overall in terms of that industry there, and in terms of, you know, outside of that supplement, just supplements in general, there yes. there are many claims that are not backed by by science that would be deemed as, as any anywhere near close to credible. Yes. Um, so it's a bit of a, a wild, wild west out there to an it extent. Is. Uh, yeah. Collagen supplements, and I've done, a, I've done some research on this. We need more science on it, firstly. Yeah. Most of the science yeah. is industry funded. 
Uh, it's funded by those companies themselves that are either selling it or supplying it. Exactly. Uh, but I would say from a nutrition point of view, and, and you can see online there, there's enough anecdotal feedback where people seem to suggest that they're getting benefits. I think if someone had an inadequate diet and yes. was was consuming insufficient amino acids, for example, in their diet, then perhaps the addition of of collagen could show benefit. But I don't see it as a sort of miracle supplement that is going to offer benefit in an otherwise nutritionally adequate diet. Yes, right. Fair point. The scientific evidence and studies are often skewed in the favor of the product or the company that's marketing the product. So how, as consumers, can we seek the truth? And where did you start with gaining information when you were doing your research? Yeah, Marion Nessel, uh, who wrote a book called Food Politics, she looked at exactly this and saw that when industry funds a study looking at a food, yep. <clears throat> they are 400 to 800% more likely to show uh, results in favor of that food yeah, compared to a non-industry funded study on the exact same food. How convenient. <laughs> so, what's going on here? Well, two things. One, industry, if they, they if they conduct a study and it has a negative result, what happens to that study? Yeah. It's not published. So, we end up with what's called positive publication bias. Yeah, right. The industry only publishes studies where there is either a null effect, meaning that their product didn't have a negative effect but didn't yes. have a positive, which yeah. in many cases for them is enough to cause confusion. Yes. Or or had a positive effect, and they'll only publish those. And even where it is a positive effect, you have to go into the methodology. Yeah. And and this is where media and news headlines, going to these sources for information is not what I recommend because they don't look at the methodology. Mm. And and that's why you see eggs one week's good, eggs one week's bad, dairy one week's good, dairy one week's bad. Yeah. That's because every study that's been conducted has a different methodology. And by that I mean, when we're looking at nutrition and, and how healthy the food is, there's so much to consider. It's, well, what dose? How many milligrams over what period? Yes. One week, one year, two years, 10 years. What population? Females, females with breast cancer, are people with cardiovascular disease, children. Uh, compared to what? What were mm. you comparing dairy to? Were you comparing dairy to refined carbohydrates and ultra-processed food? Or were you comparing dairy to legumes? Yeah. And so it's going to the media, you lose all of that nuance. And it's not a nutrition science conversation, it's marketing. Mm, exactly. Um, so, the, when, when, okay, given that, if, if we understand that, then your question is, well, where do you go for good quality information that you can grab a hold of and trust? Yes. And this is where I think the, the scientific medical guidelines come in. So, you can look at the American College of Cardiology, the European Atherosclerosis Society, the American Cancer Society, the Endocrinology Society, all of these different guidelines that are from they are created by usually 10 to 20 different experts who are given the task of go into the evidence, understand that not all evidence is equal, use the evidence hierarchy, which is a way that we can adjudicate, adjudicate quality of science, yeah. and come up with evidence-based guidelines for the public. Right. Now, if you look at all of those, and, and they're all open access. People can look at look them up online. Yeah. And you can read them. They're made accessible, so you can actually read them and understand them. All of those are coming to the conclusion that we need people eating plant-based dietary patterns. Mm. And I say dietary patterns because plant-based 
really in the literature does not mean plant exclusive. It can cover everything from a very, very well done Mediterranean diet to a pescatarian diet to a vegetarian diet to a whole food plant exclusive diet. Yeah. But what we know is that all of those styles of eating is what leads to optimal health. Yes. So if you're jumping online on social media, you see someone touting or pushing a carnivore diet or a low-carb keto diet, or you see that in the headline, it's worth just understanding that is not in line with these consensus papers that are created by all of these experts who each of them have different personal diets. Mm. They're all told to come together and to give public health recommendations and all of these different committees across the world coming to the same conclusion. Yeah, right. I think the best government dietary guidelines that are, are an example of this uh, is Canada. Okay. Again, you can jump online and search Health Canada food guidelines and look at this plate. They came out and said publicly, this, this is the first time we will not be influenced by industry. Amazing. They said that on okay. record and they came out and they recommend a diet which is predominantly plant-based. They say very, very clearly, they say choose plant protein over animal protein. Wow. And so, and they removed dairy as a necessary food group from the plate. Amazing. As its own food group. So anyone Incredible. Can, so I guess my, because I get asked this question all the time. Yeah. My recommendation to people is to become familiar with these different guideline papers. Mm. And they are, they're going to be as good as it gets when it comes to a very simple summary of what to eat from an evidence-based point of view. Okay, interesting. So, and where can people find that information? So you can search uh, Health Canada. You can yeah. search uh, Health Canada Food Guidelines for that one. For the American College of Cardiology, you can just search the uh, AHA ACC uh, 2019 um, guidelines. Okay. You can search the Endocrinology Guidelines, the American Cancer Society diet guidelines, all of it, all of those. So that's, that's okay. going to be a good starting point for, for most people. Amazing. Amazing. So let's talk about your, your book now. So it's um, obviously it's so brilliant to see how you've melded your passion and your purpose all into one. And the fact that you've taken the time to do the research yourself instead of obviously using a ghostwriter, as I, I heard you say in one of your interviews recently, it's a real testament to, to your passion for living longer and stronger, which is a passion I also share. But tell us, how did you find the confidence to write a book in a space that's already fairly saturated in that health category? Or was it a case of you feeling so fed up with all the rubbish out there that you felt compelled to kind of set the world straight on a few facts? Yeah, I, it was a question I had to ask myself, but ultimately I, I came to the conclusion that it, the world doesn't really need another nutrition book is what I thought. Yeah. And, <laughs> and to an extent it doesn't. There's one all the time, it's popping up. But the thing with these books are they are they're selling absolutes. Yeah. And they're, they're promising the world. It's, it's usually a quick fix. Yes. Uh, it's the magic pill. It's the panacea. It's the silver bullet, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I thought it was time to actually provide something that is a little bit more nuanced. Yeah. Explains that nutrition science, although it's very clear the overall characteristics of what a healthy diet are, this idea that there's one dietary brand or one single you know, diet that is outright best is a complete misrepresentation of the science and it's usually usually done to to sell books, yes. to sell copies and, yes. and is not selling long-term health. So my motivation was, yes, I was 
annoyed by the fact that the average person is, is very confused. I don't believe the science is confused. I think it's actually stunningly clear. Yes, uh, yes there's some gray and there's some nuance in there. And, and of course, most of us would prefer a black and white answer. But that's the, the honest truth is, it's not completely black or white. And yes. if you want to, to truly understand things, I think it's important to just get comfortable knowing that, that it's not completely black or white. There is a little bit of nuance. Yes. Um, and I thought I would try and write it in a way that's still very accessible. It's hopefully empowering uh, and uh, gives people something to think about. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And go, let's go back to what I mentioned at the start, the seatbelt analogy, because that was a really great one for me. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, so everything we're talking about is, is risk. We're yes. talking about reducing risk. Yes. And, and so I think a, a, a good, a, a good, here's a, here's a, a good way of describe, of going through this analogy. Because sometimes I get, I get said, I get um, asked or someone says to me, oh, but my 97 year old, grandmother she she had lots of beef and smoked and she lived till 97 yes uh and 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 so that for me is like uh, well you can you can jump in a car and not wear a seatbelt and and you may never have a car accident and may never get injured yes but but we know that you all those times you were in the car you were at much higher risk yes so if you had have had an accident then you would have more likely been more severely injured or, or even killed. Exactly. Um, and and what I say about the 97-year-old grandmother as well is that she's an outlier. Yeah. And actually in science, if we look at the curve of death, we, we those outliers are accounted for. It's not like they're not accounted for. We know that they're there. You can look at the curve. They're right down the bottom right-hand side. Yeah. And it's, it's possible. It's just not probable. Yeah. So we're dealing with uh, risk reduction here. So it's exactly. possible to live to 97 with a really unhealthy lifestyle, yes. but it's not probable. Do you yeah. want to take that risk is the question. Yes. So what, what I liken a, a plant-based approach to is wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. You're, you're doing something that's quite simple. Exactly. And, and when I say simple, uh, I mean that we all have to eat and, and although the changing of the habits is difficult, and we can, that's a whole different question, um, you know, you, the, the food tastes great, the joy is still there. Yeah. You can do it. You can, you can do it as best as you can. That might be all the time or it might be 75% of the time. But the more you're doing it, it's like wearing a seatbelt. Exactly. You're reducing your risk of developing these chronic diseases. Exactly. You're hopefully adding more years of life. Uh, and, and so that's the analogy. I love it. I love it. it. Makes so much sense. And all the proceeds of your book sales go towards the Daintree Rainforest. Is that correct? The preservation. Yes. So all proceeds I receive will or are going to Half Cut. Yes. Which is a non-for-profit organisation, and they are working to buy back land in the Daintree Rainforest. Amazing. And 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 give that land back to traditional Indigenous owners and have it protected for life. So it's, it's not, not deforested. Amazing. So tell us, what would you like to see, Simon, in the future in terms of sustainability and education on foods? Like, would you like to see a regulatory body perhaps step in and regulate the information and misinformation that's marketed, given and taught to students by a big industry? That's a key thing, yeah. definitely. I think I think the government needs to, to, to step up and, and look at a variety of solutions. One of those is regulating what we see in the media, what's 
the marketing to our yeah. children. Yeah. Uh, I think food labeling needs to be better. Yes. We we sh- we need a labeling system that is actually describing not just this idea of nutritionism, which is what's happened on our food labeling system, where we've reduced food to sugar and fat and protein. Yes. Food labeling should give people a really clear indicator as to how healthy is that food for their long-term health and yeah. their disease risk, but also how, how healthy is it for our planet? Yes. Let's have a rating system yeah. on that food that shows you the environmental footprint. Mm. Gee, that would be a hard because one to measure. As we said earlier, yeah, but we can do, we can at least do greenhouse gas emissions and, and potentially land use. We know that stuff. We know water use. Yeah. There'd be, there, there are countries that are exploring this. Okay. And it, it might just be a traffic light system to begin with. Yeah. Red, right. orange, green. Yeah. Um, to give people a bit of an indication as to the environmental footprint of the foods they're putting in their shopping cart. Yeah. Right. Um, so that, that would be, a couple of things. I think the the ultra processed food industry as a whole right now has a stranglehold on Australians. Forty two percent of the average person's calories are coming from ultra processed foods, oh. hyper palatable, irresistible foods designed to be over consumed. Yes, and there's there's a couple of reasons why they're being over consumed. One is that they are just engineered so well that nature can't compete. Right. But they're also very convenient and they are affordable and they're, they're, they're put in front of consumers too much. They're on sale nearly double, uh, nearly twice as often as, yes. as healthy foods. Yeah. And so there is, for, for the average Australian family who does not have a, a huge amount of nutritional literacy and they shouldn't need to yeah. uh, and is struggling to make ends meet, a lot of these ultra-processed Food serve as a very affordable, quick, convenient option. Yeah. And we have to change the landscape so that those families can can make the healthier choice easier yes. without having to have this high That's level right. of nutritional literacy. That's right. And it's when we when we do that, then we've properly solved this and we've gotten outside of sort of the bubble of, of people that are very well educated and, and you know, financially well off because they're going to be the first ones that, yes, can take control. Yes. But ultimately, to reach all of Australia, yep. it's going to require some big shifts to our food environment and a very brave government who is willing to come in yes. and talk about diet, which for so long has been taboo and is just such a personal thing and it's seen as, as not something a sort of democratic government wants to, to sort of tackle. And you've been getting such great reviews on your book. So tell us, are you happy with the response? Obviously you are, but are you happy? And what's next for Simon Hill? I'm happy with the response. It's, uh, it's, it's selling very well, which is pleasing. Uh, but I did think that the timing was right. I thought that the Australian public were, were looking for this kind of information, trusted information yes. that's hold of. Um, so really for me, the, the proof, uh, pardon the pun, uh, will be, proof will be in the reviews yes. for me. So, yeah. um, it's going to take a few months for me to kind of filter through that. But the early feedback I've got is great. People are saying that it's accessible, which was yeah. uh, a big thing for me. There is nearly 1500 references yes. in the book. Notice. Um, but I'm hoping that it actually feels like I'm walking the reader through it's not too, too scientific that they can't get their, their head around it or can't get through the book. Um, so, yeah, early feedback's good. And, and, and I heard that it'll be on the shelves in USA and Canada and UK in, in the next two or three months. So that's great. Very exciting. And what's next for you, Simon? 
will there be a sequel? Or are you going to start doing the rounds with workshops or I don't know? What, <laughs> what's up your sleeve? Well, I think I, I probably will dedicate a little more time to my podcast. Okay. Uh, and, and get that moving. But look, I wouldn't rule out book two. I haven't haven't given that a whole lot of thought yet. I think I yeah. just need a bit of time and space to see the the effect that this book's had, get yes. some feedback, really feel um, get a feel for for what else people want and what would be helpful. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't rule that out. I would like to do some some sort of uh, live podcast or book events, but. Uh, Why yeah, don't you we'll, join we'll forces see. with Zac Efron? <laughs> isn't he doing it? He's got a, a documentary that he's worked. Isn't it on Netflix? What is it? Um, I can't remember yeah. what it's called. Down to Earth. Down to Earth, yeah. They need yeah, a Simon Hill on that uh, show. I think he's well and truly covered, actually, by a friend of mine, Darren uh, Olian, okay. who is his yes. co-host. Yep. Uh, he's amazing. He's, um, he's from LA. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, I haven't actually watched the show yet because it hasn't been released in Australia, no, but from all reports, uh, yeah, they've done a fantastic job with that. And did it take you full three years? Like, was it something that you were focusing on every day? Yeah, it was, it was, there was a little bit of work done at least every day. Um, but you know, some, some days are not spent writing. It was picking up the, the, the phone and speaking to the shares eyes, which are neurologists in America yeah. for a couple hours on zoom yeah. and just trying to, to really workshop ideas to understand what's the most important information to put in this book, what mm. should I take out, um, and and ultimately how can I, you know, part one of that book, which is all dedicated to confusion, uh, it could seem a little odd having that in the book, but for me, I felt it was necessary to understand our environment and understand why we're confused yes. in order to sort of immunize ourselves against misinformation. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, it was definitely. There was work done every single every, every single day, pretty much for the three year period. Wow, that's intense. You need a rest. Sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. So tell us Thank what you. one of my favorite questions and the last question. I know it's um we've taken some t- of your time, but what are your top three tips for living a longer, stronger, happier, and healthier life? Plant based would have to be the first, surely. Yeah, I, I, I will. I think that look the global. Uh, burden of Disease Study 2017 looked at all risk factors for, for chronic disease. Right. And that included you know, things like alcohol consumption, smoking, and unsafe sex, and drinking unsanitized water, yeah. and poor hygiene. All of this stuff was in there. And diet is poor diet is responsible for more chronic disease and early loss of life yes. than anywhere in the yeah. world. Yeah. So, so it is arguably the most important aspect of our lifestyle. So I would start there and say foundations of the diet, uh, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices. And for some, that'll be plant predominant. But for some, it could be plant exclusive. Most important aspect being what can you commit to and, and, and turn into a sustainable way of eating that is life lasting for you? Yes. Perfect. What we don't want is trying to aim for some sort of perfection. You do it for two weeks or a month, can't stain it and you revert yeah. back. Yes. The, the big benefits for you and the planet and the animals are in what you can do long term. Yes. So I think we take take a bit of the perfection can become the enemy of good in many ways. Definitely. Um, so I'd say diet there. I would say strong connections socially with families and friends. Yes. And having uh, a really strong su- support group, uh, which can be beneficial from a number of, of, of angles, but 
it's very clear in in populations that are showing great health and longevity that they place great importance on those relationships yes. and they invest time into them, be it yeah. with their family, their lifelong partner, or their close group of friends who tend to also uh, adopt very similar lifestyles to them. Yes. Uh, so those those two, and then I'd probably add sleep. I think sleep. Wow. I think. Sleep is is just so important and something that a lot of us miss. Yes, and it's not just the hours of sleep; it's how well we're sleeping. Definitely, and and I think the the structure of having a sleep routine, and again, it's not going to be perfect all the time, but yeah, having some some structure around a sleep routine, which for me is dimming the lights a couple of hours before I'm going to bed. Mm. I'm not trying to eat food in the last couple of hours before I go to bed. Both of those things, both light and meal and, and meal yeah. timing before bed have been shown to affect sleep. Beautiful. Uh, and, and trying to get that, you know, seven to eight hours uh, sleep if possible. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And how can people find you, Simon? So if you're not sick of listening to my voice, you can come and uh, <laughs> hang out with me on the Plant Proof Podcast. Yes. Love to, love to have you over there as my guest. And uh, on the socials, Instagram, I'm most active and that's at plant underscore proof. And I should add, actually, if anyone is sort of thinking about adding more plants to their plate uh, and is not sure where to start, yeah. other than, than my book, I do have a... a a completely free complimentary two-week meal plan on my website. Oh, amazing. So that's uh, plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. You can download that and there's lots of uh, yummy, delicious recipes in there, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack ideas. So if, if that's what you're looking for, then uh, please do grab a copy of that. Sounds good. And are you also the adv- food advisor on Centre, the Chris Hemsworth app as well? Did I read that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, so I... I've been working with Chris for about four or five years now. Right. And then with, within that app, I do the, the plant-based nutrition component. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. You are a wealth of knowledge. I am so enjoying your book and I can't wait to get through it um, a little bit more. But I feel like there's so much that you've learnt in these three years. It's very hard to condense into a one-hour interview. So you've done a really great job in demystifying some some facts, particularly regarding protein. So thank you so much, Simon, for your time. We appreciate it greatly and good luck with the rest of your journey. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, I appreciate uh, you having me on today. And uh, yeah, hopefully I've provided some, some, val- some value and some interesting things for, for the listeners to think about. Amazing. Thank you, Simon. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on our YouTube channel, One Body, One Life, to see more inspirational videos to help you reach optimal wellness and longevity. But until next time, don't forget, you've got to nourish to flourish.